Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 16, and today I'm just absolutely thrilled to be joined by Chad Bird. Chad is an author and a speaker and an avid blogger, and today he joins me to talk about his ministry writing and speaking on God's radical gospel of grace. Chad and I dive into the deep waters of the theology of the cross and also the distinction between God's law and God's gospel. We also talk about reading the Bible rightly with, as he says, you need to read with an Emmaus perspective and keeping Christ at the center. We also speak to the critical nature of reading the Bible Christologically. Chad also speaks to his journey from his Southern Baptist roots to the Lutheran faith. I believe you'll be greatly encouraged by this insightful conversation. Today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, helping readers to make a deeper connection with God's Word and inspiring lifelong discipleship. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now for Chad Bird. So thanks for coming on this morning, Chad. I appreciate your flexibility. I know it's early where you are. Ah, you're very, you're very welcome. I'm glad to... Very glad to do it. Uh, we've uh, actually had a little bit of winter here in Texas, so we got the the wind outside and uh, a little bit of cold temperatures. We got my coffee and some good theology, so uh, uh, we're. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather be nowhere else than, uh, than talking about some good theology in the morning. Yeah, that's a good morning, right? It is. Um, for those that are perhaps maybe unfamiliar with you and sort of what you do, can you sort of just introduce yourself and your, your writing ministry and everything? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a sort of bivocational, I guess you could say. Uh, I work full time uh, at uh, in, in, in the freight industry. I drive a truck. Uh, but I have uh, an educational background in the academic world. Uh, I spent about, uh, oh, close to 15 years uh involved in the academy in one way or another uh went to seminary i served in a in a in a in a church for a while as a pastor and then i was called back to teach at the seminary i taught at at a a seminary for about five years old testament and uh and hebrew were my my specializations i studied for a while at hebrew union college uh in cincinnati uh, since my focus was on the old testament and that got me uh, deeper into the Hebrew and uh, into that that particular world. And uh, then uh, I uh, I left the academy. Uh, that's a long story, but I left the academy and uh, and began to uh, start this other career. But I'm also at the same time, especially these last uh, last three years, uh, doing a significant amount of writing as well as uh, speaking at conferences and churches and and whatnot. And uh, my, my focus is still in the Old Testament, uh, in particular, the Christological nature of the Old Testament. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, it's grace-saturated narratives and what those have to teach us as those who are really still living Old Testament lives in, in many ways. <laughs> uh, and I also uh, talk quite a bit about uh, the, write quite a bit about the theology of the cross. And it's uh, it's rootedness in the Old Testament, as well as, of course, its expression in the life and, and death and resurrection of our Lord. 
and then how that comes to bear on on our lives, how all of our lives are cruciform, because as Luther once said, uh, everything that belongs to God must be crucified. Hmm. That's how he claims it as his own. And so just as he, uh, just as his son was crucified, so also all those who belong to him bear the cross in order that by, by, um, our connection to him, we too might have that, that cruciform character, that, that Christ-like character. So those are, those are, um, some of the major themes in, in, in my writing. I dabble a bit in poetry and hymnody. I've had some hymns, hymns published. Uh, so I, I do that. So I kind of a, Diverse uh, number of things that I'm that I'm doing as far as my writing my writing goes. I'm uh, involved with uh, Christ Old Fast, as well as 1517 Legacy, two two websites uh, that uh, everybody listening might be familiar with. Right. We uh, uh, so I write for them. I uh, have a another podcast called uh, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament that I do with Dan Price, in which we work our way uh, sometimes quickly often slowly through the uh through the old testament narrative we uh we have worked our way through about 50 episodes uh through uh through genesis we are in uh in exodus now so uh have a lot of fun a lot of fun doing that so anyway that's uh that's kind of what i'm doing i'm uh i'm married uh, i have uh two children two stepchildren and a grandson and they all they all keep me keep me busy and uh keep life full of the of the joy that God in, intended for us. So that's kind of it's kind of who I am and a little bit about what I do. Sure, and I I can't wait to talk about your writing a little bit more, but I I will just say uh I'm a faithful 40 minutes in the Old Testament listener, so I have really enjoyed that whole podcast and what you guys have done there. So that's uh, been a huge encouragement to me. Uh, going through those stories, and uh, we'll talk about that later too. Um, but uh, first, if you can, I I would love to hear your um, your salvation testimony, if if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah, sure. Um, I have a, a little bit of a of a different background uh, than uh, than some of those that are part of my particular tradition. So I'm. Uh, I'm Lutheran. Uh, I belong to uh, a denomination called the Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod. But uh, I was raised as a Southern Baptist. Uh, my my family still is. Uh, I'm the only I'm the only only Lutheran in the bunch. Uh, so, uh, but but I was uh, I was raised in a in a very uh, a very devoted, very faithful family. We were uh, one of those families there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, uh, every time the church doors are open, as the as the saying goes. And I'm very thankful for that uh, because that meant that uh, my family always, both by word as well as by action, impressed upon me the uh, the importance uh, of our of our faith tradition, the importance of the Word of God, the importance of of course Christ Himself. So um, when I was, uh, I think I was around five years old uh, when uh, the message of the gospel, uh, at least consciously to me anyway, uh, penetrated my my heart and mind, and I believed and was and was subsequently baptized. So uh, I think for uh, at least for most Southern Baptists, uh, a relatively relatively young age, uh, I. Uh, <laughs> I can remember being, uh, I guess, uh, a little bit uh, overzealous or uh, in, in a very nerdy sort of way, I guess you could say, as a as a child. I uh, I memorized the whole first chapter of Genesis. I guess my my Old Testament interest was showing was showing young, and I can remember my. Uh, this was in a little town called Jalna, Mexico. Uh, we belonged to a Baptist church there. I can remember my my pastor uh, being being so impressed. He wanted. He wanted me to recite the whole chapter from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. I think I was six or seven. I mean, it was incredibly young. Uh, I can I can still remember vaguely, anyway, doing that. Uh, and it's it, it actually it's kind of funny to look back on that. Uh, who who knew at that point that uh, that I would end up uh, you know developing such a love for Genesis as well as for the Old Testament? But I guess I guess maybe maybe began there. <laughs> 
All of that to say that, uh, you know, at a very early age, uh, God was at work in my life to bring me to faith and to, and to begin to just, uh, increase this lifelong hunger for the word of God and for its importance, uh, in our lives as the, as the vehicle the spirit uses to speak God's, God's will to us. So, uh, that's, that's how God brought me to faith. Uh, I, uh, I continued in, in the Baptist church until I was about 18 and, uh, was befriended by a guy who, uh, became a, a dear friend and he, uh, challenged me in several areas. We, uh, we debated, we argued, we, uh, almost got in a few fistfights <laughs> because things got so heated. Uh, but over, over the course of time, um, I, uh, I gradually, uh, began to drift into Lutheranism, I guess that you, you would say, and was then later on, I think when I was 19 or 20 is when I was, uh, was confirmed. So I've been, been a Lutheran ever since, but I have a, a deep appreciation for the Baptist tradition and for, uh, their, uh, the seriousness with which they take the word of God oh. and, uh, their, their devotion to, to the gospel, to spreading, to spreading the, the word and, uh, just many other, many other facets of, of the Baptist tradition. I still have a, a very, very great, uh, reverence for and appreciation for. I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Uh, if, it, if it were not for the work of, of Baptist pastors as well as my family and oh. shaping me over my my growing up years, oh, that's great, Chad. Thanks for sharing. I um, you've you've had quite a uh, a, a bunch of different experiences and uh, opportunities in your in your past. So uh, let me ask you this: like, what is one thing? that you think you know about ministry now that you wish you knew when you were a younger guy, uh, like a young man entering the ministry? Well, I think one of the, uh, uh, one of the main, I don't know if you want to call it mistakes or not, but uh, look at a leaning. One of the, one of the major leanings that, uh, that I had, and I think this is relatively typical of, of, of men who are just entering the ministry is uh, that I, I I let my zeal get ahead of my patience. Uh, mm. When I when I came out of seminary, I I'd been in seminary for five years, working on a, a two different masters, and so I had all this I had this head full of knowledge, and I had a heart full of zeal. Uh, I was ready to I was sent to a small Oklahoma town called Wellston to uh, pastor a. Uh, a relatively small church there. We had about 75 people in church on Sunday, something like that. And uh, when I moved there, my goal was to, uh, uh, my goal was very small. All I wanted to do was make the whole town Christian. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then it's fan out from there to the whole state of Oklahoma. I mean, I was, I was very zealous uh, in, in good ways, but then uh, what I think what, what happened with me and what happens with, with, uh, some other people too, is that we let our, our zeal get ahead of the gospel. So, uh, we, uh, uh I, I tended to, uh, to push things too much instead of letting the spirit of God do his work in his, uh, usual slow and deliberate way within the hearts of, within the hearts of people. Mm. I, I will become frustrated. I would, I would gravitate because things weren't going as quickly as I wanted them to, or people weren't, doing what I wanted them to do or whatever, whatever it might be that was not going my way, you know, according to kind of my blueprint for how things should be in the church. Uh, I tended to, to drift more at times more into uh, trying to change things by means of the law spirit, change things by means of, of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now you can change things by means of, of the law because that's what people are accustomed to. We live, uh, we live 24 seven under the law. That's, that's what, that's the way this world works. I mean, you, you, uh, people, you, you promise things to people, you make deals with people, uh, you're rewarded according to how good you perform or you're punished according to how bad that you, 
that you perform. So we're accustomed to thinking that way. And so you can get things done in the church by means of, uh, by means of some sort of legal persuasion. Uh, there's lots of ways that you get things done in the church and quickly at, at times. But when the spirit of God works, uh, it's usually, it's usually very slow to be the way that not always, but that tends to be the way that grace works. Uh, and so this, this zeal that I had as a young pastor often pushed grace aside and didn't give it the centrality that is necessary in, in the church because I was so ready for things to be going in, in a certain way or for people to change in the way that I wanted them to. That's, that's one thing that I realize now. That's, I guess, both through simply maturity as well as through uh, the various experiences that I've had uh, is that the grace of God always is like a marathon instead of a 5K. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a sprint. It's something that is just going to kind of plod along and, and do its work in a church and in the lives of the individual members according to its own pace. Uh-huh. Sometimes yeah. that doesn't match our pace the way that, the way that we want them to go. So if, if, if I was going to urge, uh, urge young ministers uh, to keep one thing in mind, uh, one of the top five things to keep in mind is that uh, it's, you have to be patient because God doesn't work according to our, our time clock. Mm, that's so good because I know for me as a young guy, I'm definitely not the most patient person. So I don't know if that's just everyone or if it's just me. So <laughs> uh, I think that, I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty common. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's difficult, but I think the, uh, the wise, wise approach is always to, and to let God do what, what God is doing. Yes. For sure. Now I had Dan do this. I had him on the show a couple uh, weeks ago. And so I'll ask you the same sort of question to see if your answers line up. Um, (laughs) uh, Let me preface it by saying that I am extremely new to this idea of, of distinguishing between God's law and God's gospel. It's not something that is very prevalent in the Baptist tradition or the Baptist faith. And as a Baptist, I've just been really, uh, and being introduced to this, I've been gobbling up all the resources I can on just to familiarize myself with this sort of eye-opening doctrine in, in many ways. And so if you can, sort of um, give me, I guess, like the elevator speech of what law gospel theology is. Because I know you could talk probably for the rest of the time about it, but uh, just what's the elevator synopsis of this distinction? Yeah, so basically, uh, uh, when we when we talk about law and gospel, we're talking about the two ways that God that God speaks that God speaks to us. So if you uh, if you look at the Word of God, instead of dividing it into Old Testament and New Testament, you can divide it into into law and gospel. Say that when when God addresses us, and I'm I'm talking here specifically about uh, about believers now. That when God addresses us, He addresses us either with with words of law or with with words with words of gospel, and these are uh, uh, these are very different. When God speaks to us with His law, He is always uh, telling us what to do. He is giving us commandments. He is giving us exhortations. He is telling us, "Don't do this," or do this. So when, when the law speaks to us, it always is requiring something. Of course, the Ten Commandments are, are God's law, as well as the, the multiplicity of other laws that you have. Whenever it's asking us to do something, whenever the responsibility falls on us to do this or to avoid that, then that's law. Now the word of the gospel is utterly different. It cannot. It's it's as far apart from the law as heaven is from earth. Because when we hear the gospel, the gospel is always what God is doing for us in Jesus Christ. 
It is not something that is required of us. It is not something that we are duty bound to do. It's not something to which we are exhorted or admonished to do, threatened to do. The gospel is all God's doing. It's his declaration to us of his undeserved love for us in Jesus Christ and everything that Christ has accomplished for us. Now, of course, this gospel can take many forms. It's not just John 3.16. It's any declaration of God toward us, of his mercy, of his grace, that is rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, this might take an Old Testament form. For instance, it might look like the uh, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, because the story of the crossing of the Red Sea is ultimately about God's redemption of us out of slavery that he brings about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is retroactive in that way. It is what is the redemptive power behind the crossing of the Red Sea. It's the redemptive power behind all of the great deliverances in, in the Old Testament. So the word of the gospel is not just something you find in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament because, as, as John says, Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So uh, if you look at if you look at things that way, then anything from Genesis through the end of Revelation in which God is declaring his love, his forgiveness, his salvation, his peace to us, uh, salvation, a peace, hope that is that is found in the revelation of his son and in his sacrificial life and death for us, then that is that is the gospel. And that enti- that falls entirely on God's shoulders. It's not something that we contribute to. It's not something that we are involved in. The gospel is entirely on God's shoulders. It's something that he does. And so you can't do the gospel. You can't live the gospel. You can't do anything with the gospel except receive the benefits of it. And, of course, that's everything that it's about. It's it's. Gospel literally means good news, and so it's the good news addressed to us that 100% of everything that we need from God has been done by Christ. So the law tells us what to do and what not to do, and the gospel tells us then what God has done for us and continues to do for us in Christ. And so when you're reading through the scriptures, if you come across a passage that's telling you what to do, that's law. If you come across a passage that's telling us what God has done for us in Christ, that is, that is the gospel. So that, in brief, is what we're talking about when, when we speak of law and gospel. Of course, that, that's, uh, that's only part of, part of the story, but that, at least in, 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 uh, in summation, is what, what we mean by law and gospel. Mm. Now, and sort of, um, if you can, Give some insight on how this really changes, because when you read the scripture this way with this distinction in mind, I think it radically changes how you read the scripture. And um, so sort of give some insight on that and how how it does give you sort of a different perspective when you're reading through the Bible. Yeah, I've uh, I've written a piece. I think I called it something like Bible verses that haunt me or something like that, where I, I kind of delve into this. Uh, uh, my I, I've a. Uh, I have a, a dear family member who uh, talked to me, uh, I guess it's been about a year now, something like that, about uh, some of the struggles that, that she's had over over time because she she literally is scared to death when she reads some, some parts of the Bible. Oh. Uh, I'm just very emotionally beaten down by fear as she as she reads them because these are passages which require something of her and threaten punishments if she does not do them. And she knows that she hasn't done them perfectly or hasn't done them at all uh, at times or rebelled against them. And so she, she comes across verses like this and they scare her to death. Uh, she becomes emotionally distraught because of them because she worries about whether uh, she's actually even a Christian, whether she's saved, because when she sees herself in these verses, she sees accusation. She hears an accusing voice saying, you have not done this, or you have not done this very well, or you haven't done this perfectly. 
And that's what God is requiring of you, of you here. So those are Bible verses that haunt her and they're Bible verses that haunt, that haunt many of us. They frighten us. And this is where a proper understanding of law and gospel is not just of academic interest or, you know, some kind of theological category that's intriguing. This is life and death. This is serious stuff. This has to do with, with our, our very lives before God. And what the law and the gospel teaches us is that, yes, when we, when we come across passages that tell us to be perfect or to do this or not to do that, and we realize that we haven't, that we failed, the, uh, the surprising reality is that when that happens, then God has accomplished in us exactly what he set out to do. The purpose of the law is ultimately this. The law is there to demonstrate that we cannot keep the law. Hmm. So the law is not there in order for us to be able to accomplish it. The law is there to reveal God's will for us. It is there to reveal what would be best for us. This is what God desires of us. This would be actually the ideal life that God would have us lead. And yet, because we are plagued by sin and weakness and depravity uh, of, of, of myriads of, of forms, because of that, we're always going to fail in one way or another. And when we do, the law convicts us. The law accuses us. It says, the law says, I told you to do this, and you have not. Or the law says, I told you not to do that, and you have. And so we stand there accused by the law as guilty of breaking it either in in what we what we desire or what we say or or what we do. And when that happens, the law has brought us really to the point where God wants the law to bring us, as those who confess that we have not kept it, as those who confess that we have broken it and are deserving of present and eternal punishment. That is ultimately where the law wants to lead us to the point of acknowledging that we cannot keep the law. Now, that might seem counterintuitive, but and it would be if that was where we stopped. This is where the gospel comes in. So once the law has brought us to the point of acknowledging that we cannot keep it, that we have not kept it, that we are accused by it, then the gospel steps in with an entirely different message. And the gospel says to the law, you have no word to speak against this person anymore. The gospel puts the law away. What the gospel says is everything that you have not done, Christ has done. Hmm. The gospel says everything that you have done that you're not supposed to do, Christ did not do. So all that the law requires of us, Christ has fulfilled. And then he, through the gospel, is coming into our place. He's taking our spot as the one who is guilty. Oh. And he's, he's, he's bearing the punishment for our wrongdoing, for our breaking of the law. And he is filling in for the righteousness that we have not accomplished. So he, he's doing two things. The guilt and the accusation that we have brought upon ourselves by our breaking of the law, that Christ takes upon himself. He endures the, the, the punishment for our infractions of the law as he suffers his death on the cross. And then at the same time, because he's lived a perfect life of active obedience to the law, then that active obedience is credited to us. So that this is what theologians have called the great exchange. Oh. What happens is, Christ steps into our shoes, and then we step into Christ's shoes. And then all of a sudden, we look at Christ through the gospel, and he is the sinner. He is the accused one. He is the condemned one. He is the sinner. And then we, through this great exchange, we become the holy one. We become the righteous one. We become the sinless one. We become the child of God who is perfect in every way. That is, that is the gospel, this exchange of Christ for the sinner. 
in which he becomes what we are in order that we might become what he is. So as we're, as we're reading through the scriptures and we hear these passages that, that haunt us, that accuse us, that, that reveal how to the core of our being we have not kept the law and cannot keep the law, then the gospel comes along and says, I've got good news for you. Christ has kept the law for you. And he has suffered the, the punishment for your, for your breaking of it. And that is, that is a life saving message because it, right. it takes from us the, the, the guilt and the fear that we feel and replaces that with, uh, with a piece of God in Christ. And I, that's so good. And I'm reminded of, well, two things, because I, just in what you were saying there, I'm reminded of Paul when he says that Christ literally becomes the curse for us, as he says in Galatians. Um, but I'm also reminded of, and I jotted this down before we, uh, got on here is, is you were giving a talk at, um, at the Christ Hold Fast conference in Orlando this past year. And you said this, this line in one of your devotions that Christ turns our valleys of trouble into doorways of hope by becoming the chief of sinners for us. And that's a line that has really stuck with me because the idea of Jesus Christ becoming the chief of sinners is not something that's often thought about, or it's not something that's often preached, but that is the literal gospel and the gospel of substitution and Jesus taking our place for us. And it's exactly what Paul was saying in Galatians. He becomes the curse so that we might become the righteousness. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly it. Uh, I think it's Luther in his Galatians commentary where he's talking about that very verse that you referenced. Talk about, talks about Christ being the, the grace, greatest sinner. So he, be, he becomes the murderer. He becomes the thief. He becomes the adulterer. He becomes the covetous person. He becomes all sinners in one man. And thus he becomes sin itself. He becomes a sin sacrifice. He becomes the chief of sinners. Uh, and, and if he has not, we have no hope mm. because it, unless he has become all sin, then there is some sin out there that can still accuse us, mm-hmm. but there's not because he has become, he's become all of us, all sin in order that we might become all the righteousness of, of God. And then that, that does that transforms our lives because we are now exactly the people that God has, has made us to be his, his beloved children. Mm. Uh, well, and this whole idea of, you know, like law and gospel, and then this gospel of substitution has really changed the way I approach writing and stuff like that. And I'm, I have to say, and I'm not trying to flatter you or anything, but I'm really continuously impressed with your writing, and I'll just say I'm beyond stoked that you're uh, getting a book published next year uh, through Erdman's. So, um, anyways, if you can introduce that or as much as you can, I would love to hear more about hear more about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really uh, an exciting time for me to uh, to delve into into writing, not just blogs and articles, but uh, but but books. Um, I, the, the book is completed. Uh, it's, it's going through the various uh, long phases that uh, I guess publishing houses uh, put the book through. <laughs> so right now it's, uh, it's probably coming out uh, either in September or October of, of next year, which is a little bit later than I had anticipated, but that's just the way that publishing houses work. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, um, the, uh, the title of the book is Night Driving. Uh, notes from a prodigal soul and uh, the reason it's it's titled that uh, is because a lot of a lot of the book has to has to do with how God was uh, at work in my life when uh, when I was night driving that's that's kind of where we get the where we get the title the the book is basically uh, the story of how God takes a life that is in shambles, that is just blown to smithereens, and, and you're looking around and you're wondering how in the world can I go on? How can I, how can I move forward? Uh, how is God going to be able to to put put all of this back together again? 
And then it's the story of how God does exactly, exactly that. Cool. Uh, so it, it, it's actually partly uh, based upon um, on my own life the last 10 years. Uh, but it, it's not about me. It's, it's about how God was at work in my life and then also how he's at work in the lives of, of countless others who have experienced a, a tremendous setback in their life, a tremendous loss in their life. That might be due to sin. It might be due to addiction. It might be due to divorce. It might be due to uh, bankruptcy. It might be due to any of the 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 things that happen to us in this world, in which all of a sudden we we're looking around and and all around us, all we see are the shards of a of of, of a broken life. Oh. The, what's what's left of what we once thought was in place and that we had control of, and it was just kind of the way that we we wanted it to be. So. Where do you go from there? Well, that's where the book starts. The book starts in darkness oh. as you're as you're looking around and wondering what what now, what next. And so in, in many ways, it's it's the story of the process of healing in which God is at work in our lives. It's a story of, of repentance in which God is restoring us to himself through his law and gospel. It's a story of, of forgiveness and coming to grips once more with uh, with a a church that is often disappointing. And, uh, and then finally it's, it's a story of how we, uh, we come to be good stewards of our scars, how our scarred lives are nothing to be ashamed of, but instead these are some of the gifts that God gives to us in order that we might be good stewards of those gifts. Even, even scars for scars tell, tell a story of God's redemptive care of us. So that's, that's the basic, that's the basic uh, uh, focus of the book, and uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a great, a great help for maybe people who, uh, like myself, were once in the ministry and had to leave the ministry for one reason or another. For those who have experienced the uh, traumatic breakdown of their lives through divorce, for those who have maybe lost everything because they. Uh, became addicted to uh to a substance and lost everything as as a result of that and or just for for anyone who uh everybody knows somebody who has gone through that and uh often are involved in being a friend of them caring for them and this book will be helpful for them too as sort of a a guide on that journey from brokenness to healing well, I, I can't wait to read it. I, I'm sad I have to wait so long now. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really thrilled that uh, you're able to do that, Chad. I'm I'm excited for you. Um, now, uh, well, as I said, uh, that this whole idea of law and gospel has kind of changed the way I approach writing. And if you were to look back at some of my older uh, pieces, it would you would notice there would be a noticeable shift and the way I um, approach things. And so if you can sort of explain your process, because you don't, and I don't really blog in the traditional sense of the term. It's more, you're just like short essays or short little papers on a particular subject or whatever. So where, how do you, how do you begin that? And and what tools do you use when you approach a piece? It, it, it varies really. Um, in, in my own case, uh, as to where I get the ideas and how they how they are are formulated, and sometimes it still remains a mystery of how I get from no words on the screen to uh, to five hundred or a thousand words on the screens. But you know, sometimes it uh, sometimes my ideas come from my uh, just direct reading of reading of the scriptures. It might be something that comes up in my uh, my work for the podcast or work that I'm doing or a class I'm teaching or just simply reading, reading the scriptures. And uh, the, the germ of an idea uh, begins to, begins to formulate. And most often what I, what I, what I try and do is to, is to think of the way that this might commonly be, be taken and then to do the opposite. So I'm, I'm, I always endeavor to, to approach things in sort of a uh, an unexpected counterintuitive way, uh, you know. Just to give you one example, uh, there's there's probably a you know a hundred thousand 
blogs and articles out there about, you know, five things that you, you should accomplish in your life or bucket list kind of, kind of items. And, uh, so rather than writing one more of those, uh, I wrote a piece called, uh, five failures I hope to achieve, <laughs> you know, so th- things like that, that, that try to try to get people out of the ordinary way of thinking. You have to, Flannery O'Connor once wrote that uh, to the, to the, to the heart of hearing, you have to shout. And so I do a lot of shouting in my writing in in that sense. That's what I'm trying to do anyway, to, 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 to push people, to shout people out of their common assumptions in order to get them to look at themselves and life differently, uh, to, to surprise them with the backwards ways of God, because ultimately that, that's what this is. That's where this is coming from. Uh, Paul in first Corinthians talk about, talks about how God, you know, he uses the, uh, the foolishness to shame the wise and how all these, these backwards ways that the God is at, at work, the weak to shame the strong, so on and so forth. So that's the way that God works. He's, he's always approaching us in ways that are unexpected, that are contrary to the way that we ordinarily think. And so that's what I try uh, in my own limited way to get across in my, in my writing to, to approach things from a, from a different perspective. And as a, as a theologian, the cross to, to say things the way they are call to call a thing, what it is. When we do that, what we're usually saying is something different than what, than what people expect uh, because the, the scriptures speak differently than we are used to speaking and they think differently than we're used to, used to thinking. So, that's, that's what I, when I have the, you know, an idea, then uh, that's the first thing that I try and ask myself is how can I talk about this in a way that's different than, than what most people are, are accustomed to. And then to, and then to go from there. Uh, and my, and my goal in my, my articles is, uh, is basically going to be a law gospel approach. Not always, but uh, that's usually the way that I, that I go with it. And I want my focus always, no matter what I'm writing about, to end up being upon, upon the, the cross, upon who Christ is and what he's, what he's accomplished for, for us. And, and as I, as I do that in, in my own writing, I, I like to um, use uh, what, what I think of as, as language that you can see. So I, I, I like visual language. I prefer metaphors over terms that are abstract. Because I, I want, you know, we live in a visual age, of course, and so I want people to be able to see what I'm talking about, what I'm writing about, rather than to just absorb it intellectually. Uh-huh. I try and choose language which is which is visual, which is colorful, which is metaphorical, so that as people are are reading through that, they also have a mental image formed of of what I'm what I'm describing. So in, in my very choice of language, I, I, I like to think of it as incarnational. It's, it's rooted in the fact that our Lord took on flesh and blood. And so what he's done for us, as it's described in language, can take on flesh and blood, can take on color and shape and reflect that, uh, that incarnational life of Jesus in the very language that we use to describe what he's done for us. Yeah. Well, I always get excited when I go to chadbird.com and see a new piece. So uh, thank you for writing, and I will continue to read. And if I had to, if anyone goes there and just starts reading through, you know, some of your archived pieces or whatever, the big thing they have to take away, and if they don't, then they're not really reading it, is your love for Christology, I would say. And I think this also is coming, comes through in the podcast you do with Dan and, uh, and, um, and Brandon is the fact that everything can lead you back to uh, Christ and what he has done. And I think reading or in realizing that, especially in when you're going through an old Testament passage that is obscure or whatever is so enriching, so enlivening. And so just, it just radically changes um, 
just how you read the Bible and the fact that you realize, wow, this is pointing back to Jesus. And I, I'll just share this is when you guys were, I was listening to your, to the podcast and you guys were talking about uh, the scene where Judah is sort of takes the place of Benjamin before Joseph and just how amazing it was that before a couple chapters ago, he was in, he was putting uh, Joseph into a pit and now here he is, taking the place of his younger brother. And it's a really a good scene of the two way uh, of like the two Adams. Cause the first Adam, he, 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 he plunges everyone into darkness. And then the second Adam brings everyone into light, so to speak. And he takes the place of, of his brother. And so I just, that idea is, man, I've never thought of that passage before that way. And so reading Christologically and writing Christologically is just, it's it's just a sort of like an otherworldly thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, Luther once said, uh, all of Scripture everywhere deals only with Christ. Hmm. And so that is the perspective that I that I bring to the Old Testament text. Um, it's, the, it's, of course, the, the well-known Emmaus perspective, because on the, the road to Emmaus, hmm. Christ, beginning with Moses and then continuing through all the prophets, uh, opened up the the minds of his disciples to understand that these words were written about, about him. And so I ask of every chapter, uh, it doesn't matter where it's from, uh, how in these words is Christ speaking of himself to us? And you, when, when you approach the Old Testament with that overarching question, when you're asking that of every narrative, every prophecy, every proverb, uh, every psalm, then you're going to be heading in the right direction. And it's amazing how when you have that perspective that the Old Testament opens up in a in an entirely new way and you, you no longer see it as sort of a uh, a moral guide or, you know, kind of the, the spiritual Aesop's fables there are simply to teach us a lesson. Mm-hmm. Instead it becomes a a book that's it's all about Christ and the various ways in which he uh he reveals parts of himself to us in these Old Testament stories. Well, and that's so good, too, because a lot of the times, you know, in your general Sunday school class or whatever, especially to kids, the Old Testament just, well, it becomes, as you said, you know, a spiritual Aesop's fable. Instead of teaching them the broader narrative of Scripture, which is, the redemption of sinners through Christ. And we, f- we can forget that and just teach here is this moral principle from this old story. So make sure you're doing this. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's uh, I think that's basically my Sunday school experience as, as well. And, and that's not because I was in a Baptist church. I, we unfortunately find the same thing across denominations where, uh, Sunday school, Sunday schools became, be, become the, the training ground for little Pharisees, hmm. for those who have a picture of God as this tit for tat deity who is just about telling us how to be good and warning us not to be bad, you know, kind of the Santa Claus approach. Hmm. And when, when, when children are trained to read the scriptures in that way, then that impacts not only their understanding of the scriptures, but of God and of Christ. And so they grow up with this very legalistic attitude, very moral centered attitude about, about their relationship with God, about the, the purpose for which God has given us, not just the old Testament, but the scriptures, scriptures in general. And so we have to, we have to actively fight against that. And the way that we actively fight against it in Sunday school and in Bible class and in preaching and teaching in general is to talk about how the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, is all about is all about Christ. Everything in the Bible has to do with him. And because of that, uh, it is ultimately about his about his grace, his grace toward us. And so these these stories, as they are taught to children, uh, need to bring the focus always, always back to the cross. Uh, it, that's. There needs to uh, there needs to be a beeline to the cross, whether you're talking about the flood, whether you're talking about the time in the wilderness, whether you're talking about the life of David, whether you're talking about one of the Psalms or the prophets. Always it has to take place at the foot of the cross, because ultimately, if if we're teaching the Bible and we're not leading people to Jesus, then we're teaching it wrong. Mm. 
if we're just using the Bible in order to teach people how to be good or bad or more spiritual or just, you know, better parents or whatever it is we're trying to, to teach people to do or to be, unless that is directing us to who Christ is and what he has been and done for us, then it's, 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 not, it's failing uh, to teach really what the scriptures are all about. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moralizing twisting of the scriptures to fit our own preconceived notions of what they're about instead of what God has revealed them to be about, and that is his son. Mm. That is wonderful news, too, because uh, we don't want it about our goodness because <laughs> it would never be uh, living up, as we talked about earlier, to it would never live up to the law, and that's that's the very point of it all anyways. Um, and I think the best example of seeing this sort of, I guess you could say harmony between the Testaments is, I think this is what you mentioned in the very first episode of 40 Minutes, which is the uh, you can see reflections of Genesis in Hebrews. And uh, I just love, um, I love the book of Hebrews, and I love how the two are so similar. They're almost mirror images. I think you, that you think you were talking about that, is just how they reflect each other very, very closely. And I think that's where you can really see that everything is about Jesus, even those old stories. It, that's what that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Yeah, Hebrews is the uh, is the best inspired commentary in the Old Testament that we have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it uh, it it really does. Uh, I mean, if I was going to point people to a book, you know, what's the best commentary in the Old Testament? Well, that would be the Book of Hebrews, <laughs> uh, because uh, from from beginning to end, the whole purpose of the Book of Hebrews, of course, is to say to to the people to whom it was originally addressed, as well as to us, is that, hey, all of this stuff in the Old Testament was there for a reason. It was uh, it was purposely imperfect in order to lead us to the perfection we have in Christ. Yeah. So he is the perfect priest. He's the perfect tabernacle. He's the perfect holy land. He's the perfect believer. He's the perfect sacrifice. So everything in the Old Testament was was purposefully and prophetically incomplete and imperfect in order that in its very imperfection, it might point ahead to the necessi- necessary perfection that the Messiah was to, was to bring. And so with that kind of Hebrews perspective, when you, when you begin reading in Genesis and then work your way through, through the rest of the Old Testament, then you're going to see that, yeah, all of this is, uh, all of these, these imperfections and incompletions are there in order to be a prophetic sign of the need for them to be fulfilled, to be perfected, to use that language of the book of Hebrews in, in the sun. And so when you're, when you, when you, when you approach the old Testament from a Hebrews perspective, then you're going to be asking the right questions. You're going to be asking these Christ centered, grace centered questions that lead us to, to the gospel. Well, and, let me ask you this because I see uh, I see you have Luther behind you on the shelf there, uh, complete Luther works. So besides Luther, what what books are you currently reading? And then what would you say? What what volumes or works would you say have had the most impact on on you? Well, I'm a I'm I'm, I'm quite a, a a broad reader. Uh, I wish I could say I'm a voracious reader, but I don't have the time to be a voracious reader. <laughs> but I, but I do read every, every, uh, every chance that, that that I get, and I try to read, I try to read broadly, uh, not restrict myself to you know one particular author or to one particular uh, tradition, but to try and draw as much as I can from from various uh, <clears throat> various resources. So right now, just for instance, I'm reading a book by Tim Keller called uh, The Reason for God that uh, many, many of you may be familiar with. It's been out for, for many years. Uh, I've recently read Michael Horton's Christless Christianity or Paul Zoll's Grace and in, in Practice, more of the Old Testament, uh, The Bible Jesus Read by, by Philip Yancey, uh, just kind of a, a whole, whole uh, broad, broad spectrum there. But as far as books that were actually formational on my understanding of the scriptures and of and of Christ's place in them, well, I, 
One that early on, uh, this was especially in my in my uh, my seminary days, were influential upon me was was uh, the second century church father, Irenaeus of Lyon, who in his day <clears throat> battled against the uh, the Gnostic heresy. He wrote uh, several books called Against the Gnostics, and uh, the Gnostics, uh, in in brief, were a, a heretical group that. Uh, destroyed the message of the gospel by, uh, first of all, ditching the Old Testament and then portraying Christ as, uh, portraying Jesus as a, another kind of Christ who, whose ultimate purpose was really to help us discover the, the, uh, the, the specks of divinity within each of us to use kind of modern, modern language. And, uh, they, they denigrated the, the flesh and blood, uh, reality of, of our Lord. And so Irenaeus wrote these books against them. And, and my, the, one of the main things that I took away from Irenaeus is that, is, is the importance of, of the, the flesh and blood nature of, of our God, that he, in his incarnation, took on our humanity. And because of that, his whole purpose of restoration of us is for us to be restored into the fullness of humanity that God intended for us. So there's this great quote about, the from Irenaeus that the glory of God is a living man. This is the way God's glory is manifested in us being fully alive, fully human, as as Christ Himself is. And then, secondly, from Irenaeus, I took away this uh, this this quote from him that that God created us in order that He might have someone upon whom to bestow His blessings. So that is the reason we were created, in order that God might give things to us, love us, be merciful to us, be gracious to us, make us his children. He didn't create us for himself. Instead, he created us in order that he might have those upon whom he can bestow his love. Mm. So Irenaeus was very formational in my early understanding. Uh, but then uh, Luther, uh, right, right behind him, especially his commentary on Galatians, as well as his uh, his multi-volume uh, commentary on the book of Genesis from which I drew uh, all the time in when we were covering Genesis in 40 minutes in the Old Testament. So what uh, what Luther does there is he he does what I was describing earlier. He brings us back again and again to the law and the gospel and helps us see the Old Testament narratives from that from that perspective. So those were just two of the, of the many authors that uh, that were that were influential, especially in my early years, and forming my understanding of of Christ, as well as uh, how we approach the scriptures from a Christ centered perspective. Mm. And well, I'm definitely gonna have to read some of Irenaeus because I don't think I've ever read any of his stuff. Uh, if I can get my hands on it, <laughs> um, but so thank you for suggesting that. But as I as I mentioned in or as I've mentioned before, is that the Majesty's Men, which is uh, the uh, ministry I'm affiliated with, exists really to just engage young guys with the gospel of Christ and with the gospel of Christ crucified. And so if if you were allowed to say only one thing to an audience of young men, uh, what would that one thing be? In everything that you that you write, in everything that you teach, and everything that you preach, to keep the cross of Christ as the center of it. We so easily move away from that. Uh, and so we have to constantly remind ourselves to bring that back, to place the cross before our own eyes and to place the cross before the eyes of, of all of those that we are connected with, uh, to whom we minister in order that they might be drawn into that, into that life, death, and resurrection of Christ and find in him everything that God desires for them. So to put it briefly, to make sure that their life and their ministry is cruciform in shape, that it is shaped and conformed to the cross of Christ in order that they might bring people into that saving reality of who he is. Mm. That is so good. And then I think we... I think we we did that here in this in this uh, in this show. So <laughs> that's good. I'm enriched, um, Chad. I want to appreciate, or I want to say thank you for 
coming on and making the early morning uh, uh, sacrifice to uh, talk with me this morning. I've been really encouraged. So thanks for making uh, the time for me this morning. Hey, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, was, was glad to do it. Love to love to talk theology any, any chance I get. Yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. And I, I hope we get the opportunity to do it again soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks, Chad. And thanks again to Chad for taking the time to come on the show today and share his passion for God's gospel of grace. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and go check out his website too at chadbird.com. You can find those in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for staying with me and for listening. If you like what you just heard, be sure and follow the show on Twitter. And you can also subscribe to the show in iTunes and on SoundCloud. Thanks again to the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for listening, commenting, and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode.